What's up, you guys? I am Micah Folsom, and you're listening to the Do Your Crap Podcast. I was overwhelmed, uninspired, and unfulfilled, and I knew there had to be a different way to do life. Turns out, there totally is. And I found my calling in helping people learn and do the unsexy habits that build a legendary life. Each and every week, I'm gonna help you bust through the crap that's holding you back and break down the simple habits and mindset shifts that will help you rock every aspect of your life. Are you ready to do the things that most people won't so that you can live the life that most people can't? Here we go. another episode today I am so excited so a couple months ago you guys know I had my dad on to talk about Operation Underground Railroad to talk about human trafficking to help just you guys understand what's going on I know I had no idea um, how prevalent it was and how just how big of a situation we were in until I saw that movie Um, about Operation Underground Railroad. And my dad is the chief of operations. Like you think I would know what was going on. And I was literally clueless. And so I brought him on. I had so much feedback, so much feedback from you guys. And so I reached out to my dad and was like, dad, what more can I do? Like, how can I just help people be more aware? How can we just help the situation in any way? And he was like, you've got to reach out to Rebecca. She's awesome. <laughs> She's a survivor herself. And now she helps women who have been victims. And so we just got chatting and we have her on today. And so I'm just going to turn it over to her really quick to just tell us exactly. So Rebecca, I'm gonna, we're going to dig into your story in a little bit, but what exactly do you do now with just this whole situation with everything that's Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply going on. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to get to share with um, all of your people more about this issue. So I'm just, I'm excited that you're even talking about it and, and inviting me to the table. Um, I'm really, I'm just really grateful to even be invited to the table. Um, so I'm what, I mean, I, I do so many things, but I, I'm what's referred to as what would be called a survivor leader. That's a term that's used nationally to identify someone who has a lived experience of human trafficking and then has dedicated their professional and educated experiences 
um, to go back into the fight against human trafficking. Um, survivor leadership is required at a, for a lot of grants. Um, federal government requires survivor leaders to be on advisory councils or seated um, as a consultant if you're going to be receiving federal or state funding. Um, the White House has a survivor advisory council. Survivor leadership seats are required at every task force level across the country. So survivor leadership is a big deal. Now, it doesn't pay. <laughs> so um, for my job, I actually run a nonprofit. It's called Elevate Academy. It's the largest online school for survivors in the world. We have over 700 students, six countries, and three languages. We assist victims in crisis response, helping people get on their feet. Oftentimes, we have students who unfortunately go back to their traffickers, um, especially during COVID and crisis, you know, crisis elevates vulnerability. So we've had to do a lot more kind of supportive listening. But in that school, we have mentors and coaches and cohorts. We take survivors to just try to figure out their now what is kind of my, my phrase. After I escaped six years of human trafficking, I remember having a, this moment where I thought, now what? Like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I have no job history. I have no education. I have a criminal record. It just, I felt really hopeless. And so I wanted to mentor other women through that process of figuring out their now what. Um, but because of that, I also share my story. And, and so I'm a writer and a speaker. My memoir just came out from Zondervan this January. It's called In Pursuit of Love. It's my full testimony of kind of getting trafficked and getting out. And through those speaking engagements, I started realizing that I wanted my story to have purpose. I wanted it to be more than just a sob story of one person. I wanted there to be a call to action. And so I created a law enforcement training that was specific to my story and lived experience. I thought, man, I've been to jail a lot <laughs> for state-related, prostitution-related charges, but we also had this federal case against my trafficker, and so I, I felt like I had both these county and federal um, case studies that I was able to turn into a training, and I was shocked when it gained a ton of favor. And in seven years, we have trained over 100,000 law enforcement officers, FBI, HSI, vice school. I've gone to like underground teaching at vice schools and undisclosed locations. Um, we've worked Super Bowl two years in a row. And through those organic relationships, we end up getting called in often for cases. So I actually will come through a case for a district attorney if I'm brought on as a human trafficking expert, just like you would bring on a blood splatter expert or an arson expert to talk about fire patterns, right? So I get brought into cases as a human trafficking expert. I come through the case file, write a report, and then the judge subpoenas me to the stand, I testify to the jury on common tactics employed by traffickers. Um, and so it's all of that. So it's a lot. So we run the school and we're helping survivors, but my heart really loves law enforcement and loves working cases and because of my personal experience. So with a great team, we're able to do all of that. That is amazing. Okay. So first of all, I've like, I have so much admiration for you. You lived in this. I mean, I can only just imagine this hell hole for six years and then you survived, you got out, but you didn't just leave that like behind. You literally have to go there. You have to like go back every single time you're working with victims and every single time you're helping them. That's just so admirable. Mm, <laughs> thank you. Mm. Respect for you. That's amazing. I'll tell you it, that, you know, what helped me, not just helped me, but what hit me one day, it was just like, all of this can't have been for nothing. 
Yeah. Like all of this can't have been for nothing. And that's what I think resilience is. It's not about getting something back to where it was before. I didn't want to go back to where I was before. I had to fight and climb to create something greater than before and to say all of this can't have been for nothing. And I think that that pillar in my life is for everybody, right? Like we all have a story to tell. You, Micah, have a story to tell. And what you've been through, it wasn't for nothing. And you're doing something today. And every viewer, listener today, like everybody has a story. And what you've been through wasn't for nothing. Figure out how you can help. And, and it feels like a lot, it just feels more purposeful when you know that it can be used for good. Love it. Purpose in your pain. Trent Shelton talks about that all the time. Finding purpose in your pain is what can help you through some of the hardest times. And that's exactly what you've done and what you have now built a life around. That's just so cool. Okay. So I want to hear more about your actual story. So you mentioned your memoir. So where, first of all, where can we find this? Because I know everyone's going to want to get their hands on it. Yeah. Anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Yeah. We would love for you guys called In Pursuit of Love. Um, Rebecca Bender, you can go visit our website and get it too, but yeah, it's on Amazon and we, we, the Audible I read, and so a lot of people like the Audible. If you guys like Audible, oh, um, Audible, it's my voice, and I feel like we've gotten a lot of great feedback to say the Audible was so good because you could really hear my emotion reliving some of the scenes. Um, and sitting down and reading your whole book in three days, is it isn't easy um, just because, you know, I talk about my story a lot, but going through, like, all of the details – um, there would be times I'd have to stop in the studio and take a minute and yeah. wipe my tears and be like, all right, I've got it. Let's get back in. <laughs> You're amazing. I can't. Okay. I'm grabbing that as soon as we're done. I'm, so <laughs> I'm probably just going to like listen to it on overload until I get through it. Cause I'm so excited. But for those of you on now, I want them to hear just, just a personal experience of someone who's been through this how it even like how you even find yourself there, what it's like to go through it, and then even how you got out. Um, and then we can go on. So let's yeah. dig into your story first. Okay, yeah. I'll give you the the short version so you guys can still go get the book because it is it's a lot yeah. more in the book. And I took a really unique approach with the book um for some very purposeful reasons. So I, I really hope everyone goes and takes a look at it. But um one of the things you know, as I start sharing my story, I think it's important for people to hear, especially as you're coming off of interviewing your dad and, and seeing a pre-screening of the film, is that, you know, trafficking looks very different based on the culture and community in which you live. And I think oftentimes we see movies or we read an article and then we suddenly panic, like, oh, that's going to happen in my town. This could happen to my babies, you know, and, and I want everyone to just like take a breath. Trafficking looks really different based on where you specifically live, how it looks in Latin America, um, in very impoverished countries is going to look very different than how it looks in Seattle, Washington, or even in little tiny farm town, Oregon, where I'm from. It looks really different. It's going to look different on the streets of DC than it does in the streets of LA. It's just, it looks very different. So we can't just picture one way. According to um, the National Human Trafficking Hotline, there's actually 25 different types of human trafficking in America alone. So when we're only picturing that kidnapped, sensational, like Hollywood screenplay version, you're literally missing 24, two dozen 
other ways that it looks right in your very own community. And that's what's so important. The movies are great. The big one-offs are great. But we have to remember what the other parts look like in our towns too to keep our family safe. Yeah. So with that being said, with my story, I was born and raised in a small farm town in Oregon. It's called Grants Pass. Most people have never heard of it. And I was kind of an all-American, small-town, blue-collar family. We, I'd skip rocks at the river in the summers. I'd ride my bike to the neighbors. Um, I would take a salt shaker out to the garden and pick a tomato as a kid. I just had a really normal kind of childhood um, and, until I was nine, and my parents divorced. It was a really ugly divorce. Um, I was not raised in a faith-based home, but my grandma was a praying grandma and she would take me to like vacation Bible school in the summers whenever she had me. Um, but when my parents divorced, things were really hard. My dad started drinking a lot, which um, led, I think, some to the divorce. I think he started drinking a little prior to the divorce. And he would get very angry, throw things against the walls. Um, he would never hit me or my mom, but it was a very like volatile home, which I think desensitized me to some violence, you know. Yeah. Um, my mom had been a stay-at-home mom, and now suddenly she was, we're living in poverty, trying to make ends meet. She has work in two to three jobs, so I'm cooking my own breakfast, I'm cooking my own dinner at nine, ten years old. Um, and I just, because of my dad's alcoholism too, he would pick me up for visitation and we'd um, like drive to the bar and I'd sit out in the car for hours until he came back out. And so from about nine to 12, maybe 13, um, it was a really hard time for me. And it created a lot of vulnerabilities that made me feel alone, unimportant, and unwanted. Um, and they're, you know, they obviously got through that rough time in their own lives. My dad's sober now. We have a great relationship. And my mom remarried. Um, and things are fine now. But I think as adults, we forget about some of even the small, small T, we call them traumas, because we're picturing, you know, I wasn't sexually abused. I wasn't physically abused. Um, I did watch abuse. Um, so, you know, I want to be clear that that is some form of abuse. When children are exposed to domestic violence, that is a form of abuse. So, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. That, that's still really hard, but I would have never been put in an at-risk youth category, I guess is my point. Um, going off to high school, my mom had remarried. Life was normal for me. I was a real gregarious, fun kid. I was, I was um, a class clown. I was really funny. I'd put on little skits in the fourth grade as this little like teacher. I'd always been funny, even before the divorce. It's just something I like to do. And so by the time, yeah, I was in high school. I was a varsity athlete. I was on the honor roll. Um, I played varsity soccer. I was the goalie. I got accepted into Oregon State University in Corvallis, and I was really excited to move out of my small town and go off to college. I'm hopeful that other people can relate to how that feeling of like, I got to get out of this small town. And, yeah. and I, you know, hope to play soccer at OSU. And I had this great vision for my future. Um, but that summer, I ended up getting pregnant by my boyfriend. And I was 17 because I graduated a year early. And I decided to keep my daughter. And I unenrolled from the university and started going to community college. And I suddenly was um, the girl on the campus with the kid. And those old feelings resurfaced of feeling alone and unimportant and unwanted. And I desperately wanted a family for, I think, broken nine-year-old me. 
um, that I wanted for my little girl. Her dad um, was out of the picture. And I talk about all this in the book a little bit more in detail, trying to give you guys just the fast version. And it was at that time, though, that I met um, a guy. He was 24. I was now probably 18, almost 19. And he had all the answers. He was funny and ambitious. And he cast this big idea of like what our future could be together. And, you know, running, he ran a company and I would go to school and um, we could build this, 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 his business together in this industry that he was in. And, and I just got like wrapped up in finally someone wanting me and seeing a future with me and wanting to build with me. And so after six months of dating, he invited me to move in with him. And I thought, this is it. I met his family. I mean, I met his brother. And, you know, that's kind of that natural progression of a relationship. So you're not thinking like red flag, red flag, red flag. You know, you're like, oh, you met. Yeah, everything you, sounds normal. Yeah. Yeah. So then he told me that his job was relocating him to Las Vegas. And I thought, well, every good woman follows her man, right? That's what we're taught as young ladies. And um, I jumped in the opportunity to go. And I think that's a very different scene than kidnapping as a small child. You're a 19-year-old girl who's being lured by someone who is a complete con artist. And he's knowing exactly what to say to you because he's playing on what you want. He was none of those things that he pretended to be. He morphed and became a chameleon to meet the need that I was displaying. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And so it was this much more seductive lure. And we actually call it Romeo trafficking is the, the technical term that we actually use when we're working cases. Like, oh, was she Romeo? Did she have a Romeo? Because we see it really, really common, this Romeo tactic where you find a vulnerable young person and you lure them in by meeting a, pro, you know, meeting a need. We actually see this with Epstein. This is exactly what happened in the Epstein case. His case, it was no different. What makes, him, what makes his case really unique is he was a bajillionaire. But what doesn't make him unique is his tactics. They were the same exact tactics, finding vulnerable low-income, at-risk girls in Palm Beach and luring them away with the promise of money with a false sense of a friend. They were sent, a recruiter was sent for him, right? It, it, these are the same tactics we see everywhere. And so when we arrived in Vegas, he told me um, to get dressed up on the town and I borrowed my friend's fake ID. I always say this is pre-Jesus, don't judge me. And I was <laughs> um, excited to kind of, you know, small town girl in this big city. Vegas is a big deal. And you got all these giant nightclubs that are just insane. It's like things you've only imagined or see on the movies. You're getting to experience. You felt very um, enticed and enamored and like kind of awestruck a little. And so we, we left the baby with his brother and then he drove me to um, a dead end street. And I can remember him looping the truck around to the curb and parking. And there was this deserted strip mall on the right hand side. There's no lights, no signs, just this gray, like abandoned strip mall is what it looked like. And he said, um, I spent a lot of money to get you here. I filled the fridge with food first and last on the apartment. And that was money I was using for my work that we need to get back we. Everything was we. Not you, not me. Everything was we. This real sense of belonging that they play into. And I felt embarrassed that I didn't 
realize how much it would cost to move halfway across the country as a young person. I felt naive and you don't want to be the, you know, young girl with the older, you know, guy that you're in love with. I mean, 19 year old me was in love. Like I was head over heels in love. I thought I was going to get married, that he would be the father to my daughter. And so I said, okay, I'll get, you know, I'll go to work, dance, whatever you need me to do. I mean, I had already started I'd already been desensitized to strip clubs and my aunt had been a dancer. And so we already had a lot of these desensitization to hypersexuality. And he said, um, actually that one door, there's a camera above it. He said, that's an escort service and I'm going to need you to go in and sign up. And I said, escort, that sounds like prostitution. No way. And he goes, no, 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 that's not, that's not how it works here you know, in Vegas, it's escorts are just like modeling agencies and, and they book you to go to those big giant parties where you just, you know, lay around at the pool in bikinis. And, and this is how it works here to get like dancers in rooms at the, at the really big suites. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm from a small town, but I'm not that naive, like escorts prostitution. I'm a smart girl. I got, I was on the honor. Like, I'm not, I'm not super naive. I mean, to some degree, but not I knew that escort meant prostitution. And that's when uh, he slapped me across the face. And he said, you're going to go in that room and you're going to get my money back. And I can remember having this moment of like being hit for the first time by someone you love and all of those emotions as a 19-year-old girl. And then I kind of pushed him away and was like, well, we're adults now, right? Dad threw things in the house. We're just adults now. Mom had a jerk boyfriend. I just kind of just pushed it aside. I don't even think I consciously had those thoughts. I think subconsciously due to your desensitization, you do that, you justify. And then I remember having this splash of cold water feeling of, I don't know where my baby is. I just got here yesterday. I didn't memorize my address. I didn't write it down. This was pre-Craigslist. I think Craigslist got us kind of used to like giving, leaving addresses with people like, hey, I'm picking up a couch. If I don't ever come back, check right. the serial killer on Main Street, right? But like yeah. before that, you didn't think about some of those things. And that's when it really hit me. Like, I just need to get home to my baby. I just, I just wanted to go back to yesterday. I thought I'm just going to get through the night. I'll just, I'll just dance in some pool parties and then we'll get the money back and I'll get home and things will be better tomorrow. And that's kind of what I told myself. And I went in the escort service and there was a dry erase board on the wall with names. Um, It said there was categories, blonde, redhead, um, blonde, brunette, redhead, Asian, exotic. And underneath there were these names like Candy, Bambi, Ivy. So like you're thinking strip club, like, okay, well, maybe it's like dancing. So you're okay. I can trust him. And then she pulls out all this paperwork and it's kind of like medical, you know, medical paper. No one's really reading all the fine print and let's be real. And so you're kind of looking, you're supposed to initial next to each line. And so I'm pretending to skim each item because people are watching you. And she said, that just says that you're not going to solicit. We don't accept those kind of girls. And I thought, oh, see, I can trust him. It's just dancing. I'm just, so it felt like every step felt okay until it really wasn't, you know, like, so in hindsight, obviously there's all these red flags, but in the moment as a young person, it felt believable, you know, to some extent like, oh, okay, it's, it's going to be okay. (laughs) But I think that's something that we need to be thoughtful of. If you have older, 
groups if you have older children. I know I have a, I know my daughter who was a baby at the time, she's 20 today. And we talk about when you get in situations you're not comfortable with. I mean, think of all the Epstein girls. There were 16, 17. Some of them were younger, but some of them were, you know, when you get to a high school party and something's happening you're not comfortable with. It's not always those kidnapped scenes of ch dirty children locked in basements. It's not always going to look like that in your town. And a lot of traffickers need to keep their products sellable. So they are girls that are very well look very well taken care of and they have, you know, a smile slapped on their face out of fear. They ha the product has to remain sellable. And so oftentimes you would be beaten under your clothes so that your face wouldn't be messed up. I can remember peeling my clothes off before and having literal fist prints look like my trafficker had dipped his hand in purple paint like up and down the, my rib cage and buyers didn't notice or they didn't care or kind of darker in the rooms and and so it's just it's it's a really insidious horrible industry i also want to i also want people to be really aware that it's very rarely kidnapped children it's less than 5% are actually kidnapped of traffic victims are actually kidnapped you know about 75 to 90 it varies per state there's not a national statistic right now that i have seen it changes every year but 75 to 90 percent of trafficked kids in the united states have been in foster care for a very long time in my state in the state of oregon 95 percent of trafficked kids had been in foster care since age two that's not to say that foster care is trafficking children. We hear this myth all the time reposted on Instagram. Foster care is the trafficking gateway. And so people, you see that and people think, how are, how are child welfare government agencies selling children? And you're like, no, what we're meaning by foster care is a gateway is that when you are raised as a young person in a, in a continual change of environment where you're raised in group homes, you have an inherent need to belong. Oftentimes it's very poverty. You know, if you're in and out of group homes as a young person, you, you're in poverty. You're there for a reason. So you've been desensitized quite possibly to sexual abuse. Um, you've already been taught that, you know, people using your body is okay as a young person, you know, like little kids' brains don't, they don't, when you've been abused, like it's a real thing, you know, your brain doesn't always connect accurately. And so when you hear the phrase like foster care is a gateway, that does not mean that your child welfare office is selling children on Wayfair. What that means is that kids in foster care are higher risk to be lured by those Romeo traffickers. That's what that saying means. So they pry on the hope vulnerable. that's helpful. Yeah, totally. And one of the things that my dad said was, cause I got questions all the time about like, well, how can I protect my kids? What can we do? And he said, first thing you can do is love your kids, love them because when they're loved and when you're taking care of them, they don't need to fill those voids elsewhere and they don't need to be accepted elsewhere and all those things. So yeah, I love that you shared. It's a very, it seemed like a very normal process, a very normal, and you were groomed just like there's all different ways to do it. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I think some of the other ways to keep your kids safe is I think it's so right. When you love your kids, they don't need us. They don't have a sense of belonging as much as, as those who have been desensitized. It's also really important to um, consider internet safety. 
Make sure you have parent filters on your phone. Make sure you're, you're looking at phones. You're looking at messages. Um, just make it a rule. If you get a phone, you know, at any time, I'm, I'm, I might just have to look. We, we want to be thoughtful around privacy of your kids. You know, you, you want to make them feel trusted for sure. But we also can't be so naive that we're not just we're just not seeing anything they're doing because a huge amount of traffic victims are lured off the internet. Um, and it will start something small. It's not this giant jump, which is, I think it's important for people to know. It's not like all of a sudden they're gone and, and they're out selling. It's not that it's not A to Z. It's this gradual expansion of boundaries that the person they think they know and trust, even if it's someone on the internet, that they're expanding their boundaries. So it'll start with like, why don't you just send me a sexy photo? And no, you don't have to take any of your clothes off. Just send me something looking at the, you know, just look in the, in your, just have your eyes look in the camera. And so it's this little bit, little bit, little bit. And then it's like, well, I'll send you 50 bucks if you send me another photo in your bathing suit. Right. And so it's, it's these gradual little um, pushes that people don't realize until now they've been, you know, now it's like you become decent, your boundaries become expanded and you don't realize that, oh, being in my bathing suit isn't that big of a, taking photos amazing, not much of a deal, right. big deal anymore. And so it's like, you don't catch it. Yeah, totally. So, so you got in, how, how many years did you say you were in like the whole trafficking? Did you say six years? Yeah, almost six, nearly six, mm-hmm. so how, five years, 10 months or something. What does that even look like? Like how does one finally get out of it? Like how do you get stuck in it? What is Yeah. That- so this is the big bulk of the book. You guys, I share not just so much of the grooming and re- recruitment, which is important, but I really wanted people to know what it was like to be there. And in the near six years I was there, um, I was traded and, and, went through three different trafficking families, two traffickers. That's what they would be called. In the, I'm using some street lingo, sorry. <laughs> um, some, the technical term would be stables, which you can imagine. It's when a, a trafficker has multiple women, just like you'd have a stable of horses, you have a stable of women. Um, but traffickers would refer to them as families. Like, so it's very brainwashing, especially for kids like in foster care. You know, It's like, this is my family. This is the family that never judges you. I can remember being told this, like in this family, it doesn't matter what you do. You will never be judged here. Like we will always be accepting. You could do anything here and we would still accept you. I bet your mom's not like that. I bet your friends aren't like that. I bet your youth group leader isn't like that. And to a young person that's made some bad choices, even if it wasn't totally their choice and they were pressured and their boundaries were expanded. Hear me out. I'm not victim blaming. But if you, if you know that you've crossed lines either by choice, force, or influence, that trafficker is holding that over your head, not as just I'm going to tell, but now he's holding it over as like, see, you've done all these things and we all still love you. Yeah. And so it's very enticing. So yeah, for six years, three homes, three families, um, two traffickers tattooed their names on my back. You get branded when you're in the game. Um, I've had my face broken in five places. My palate cracked, my nose twice, and my maxiofacials and turbinides impounded. I've been to jail uh, multiple times for prostitution-related charges, soliciting with intent, trespassing with intent, solicitation, disorderly conduct. Um, I've been hospitalized for dehydration and overexhaustion. I collapsed in the Hard Rock Casino because I hadn't been given very much sleep. I was at one point forced to sleep about an hour a day in the closet, um, which sounds way worse. 
like I don't want to sensationalize it by any means. Uh, we had a very big home. It was a 5,000 square foot home, travertine marble all the way out to the curb. We had a live-in nanny that took care of our children. We drove very high-end cars, Mercedes, Jaguars, Rolls Royce, Bentleys, very high-end. Um, we were in, the trafficking ring was indicted on over $4 million of tax evasion. He had bought a pizza shop locally in downtown um, in, in Texas and I won't say the city in Texas. And, um, he was laundering money through the pizza shop, which is originally how the uh, federal indictment began. But I say all that to say when the federal indictment happened, when the feds raided one of the homes in 2006, I stopped being able to sleep much because I was forced to work all the time to pay for all these surmounting legal fees. And two of the victims were sitting in prison. So I, one of them was denied bail. The other got bail. Um, they both eventually went to prison, but one of the girls was denied bail. She was considered a flight risk by the judge. And so one of the victims was considered a flight risk and denied bail. And so we didn't have her making money. And so I suddenly had to pull in like double the quotas and also add on legal fees. And so he would say, go sleep in your walk-in closet. I mean, the walk-in walk closet was like a second bedroom for some people. It was a big closet. It wasn't like I was thrown in the, in the mirror sliders, let's be clear. It was one of those walk-ins, and you've all probably seen one it, one time in your life where you walk in, you're like, dang, you could put like a crib in here. You know what I mean? You've all had those. It was one of those size closets, and it was where it was quiet and dark because there's no windows in closets, and so generally. So that's why he would always say, like, go sleep in the closet where it's quiet and dark because if you're only giving from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. for a one hour of sleep, like you, you need the quietest, darkest place immediately. Um, and it was rough. I mean, I got down to like, gosh, 95 pounds due to stress. At one point, I was really strung out on drugs. And then I got clean. And it's just such an in and out story of just so much. During this whole time I had my daughter with me, at one point when I got really drug addicted, my family showed up in Vegas and took her from me. And they just thought it was drugs. They didn't realize that I'd started using drugs to mask how I was feeling. And I think, you know, again, those are misconceptions of just the general public in general. It's like, we all think, oh, well, they're a drug addict and therefore they started prostituting. Right. And oftentimes it can be vice versa. I was forced into prostitution. And so I started using drugs to mask my emotions because I didn't know how to get out. And I was so embarrassed of the stigma and I was so ashamed. I can remember thinking, I'm a good kid from a good home. Like, how did I get here? What do you call your mom and say? It's so embarrassing. And you think part of you still loves him. So you're in this weird, like, for a long time, I just thought I was in domestic violence. Like, well, he hurts me, but I love him. And he told me it's only going to be another week of it. And so it's like this dangling carrot yeah. that you never can quite reach. Um, but, you know, I think what's important to know is that as survivors of trafficking, we grow up in the same communities as you. So like, I too envisioned trafficking as kidnapped kids in white minivans being taken to dirty basements where they're handcuffed to a radiator and, yeah. you know, are waiting for some creep to come in and abuse you on a mattress on the floor, right? Like that's what I, so I grew up in the same community as you, the same culture as you. So I also thought it looked like that. And then when my situation isn't mirroring what we see on TV, I think, well, I must not be being trafficked. Right. I must be in domestic violence. And that's the problem with sensationalism is sensationalism fuels misidentification, not just for the general public, but for the victim themselves too. Yeah. 
taking a quick TV time out to make sure that you guys know that I have some free goodies for you. So as a listener, I just want to show my appreciation and thank you so much for showing up weekly to hear from the guests that we have to take just all of these nuggets away and apply them into your life. I want to celebrate you. And in order to do that, I also want to make sure that you're getting value that is relevant to where you're at in your life. So in order to get the freebies, go to micafolsomfit.com slash DYC for do your crap, micafolsomfit.com slash DYC. And you can put in your email there and get access to the goodies. You will get a 50% off promo code to any of my mini workshops. And you will also get a freebie depending on what you want, whether you're a mom that wants to experience more joy in life that needs help on her health journey, wants tips and nuggets and value and motivation, whether you're a business owner that's trying to work through some mindset stuff and feel confident in what you have and how you want to serve, or whether you're in the network marketing space and you really want to gain confidence around recruiting, around onboarding, around mentoring your team, I have a free goodie for you. So make sure you go to that link, grab it. And that will also get you access to my weekly emails where I send inspiration, motivation, nuggets, value, things that I'm learning, things that I'm teaching. And I just want to be that voice in your back pocket that on the weeks that are hard on the weeks that you're just not feeling it, maybe that email pops through and you go, okay, thanks, Micah. I got this. Thanks for the reminder. That is what my weekly emails are for, because we all need that positive voice that we should carry around with us everywhere. So Go get on the list, go grab your freebie, and let's get back to the show. When we only are talking and posting pictures of kidnapping, and that's not my situation, I don't ask for her help soon enough. Yeah, exactly. And you think, like, how are these kids in these situations around people and not just screaming for help and screaming? But it is like they're so desensitized. They're so like, this is just normal to them now. This is just, and so they're not, oh my gosh. And you're very brainwashed. I mean, literally there's a research report that came out of Northern Colorado University a few years ago. um, So maybe two that did a, a long study on human trafficking and it showed that domestic, so United States, Romeo trafficking fit every single indicator of cult behavior. So it's this high control group leader of a community. They're rewarding you for cooperation. So that's the other thing. It's like, you're not just getting beat every day. You're also getting rewards when you obey. And how do you train people? How do you train a dog? How do you train? How do you do potty training? Right? If you go in the potty, I give you an M&M. And so you're getting rewarded for cooperation. You're getting in trouble when you don't obey the rules and not just physical punishment. You're getting ostracized socially. I can remember one of the girls I was trafficked with, she, was, she would be forced to go out to the legal brothels if she didn't obey the rules. She wasn't allowed to stay with us and the family. She was socially ostracized. You got to the brothel this month, you're in trouble. So it didn't require a beating. It took her away from what she had come to know as her family. And so it's very... They're very calculating in the way they brainwash you. They use very cult-like behaviors. It's, it's very much, and these aren't just things we're making up. Like Stockholm syndrome is a real DSM-5 diagnosis, <laughs> like polyvictimization, complex compound trauma. Like those are real things. Capture bonds, those are real actual things. And so when people ask, why don't you just run? I'm like, well, you're thinking that from a really healthy adult brain. Yeah. You're not thinking that from a 19-year-old, capture-bonded, traumatized brain. And so you're, you just don't think like, 
like you should, right? You just don't. Absolutely. Okay. So you mentioned for a second, selling on Wayfair. I want to talk about that really quickly because that's when a lot of the awareness happened was when the whole uproar with Wayfair happened. So do you, can you just give us a little bit of a briefing on what we can do to help and also when it's actually more harm than good, when we're sharing things on social media and, and things can kind of get out of hand. Let's just talk about the Wayfair situation specifically. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's so crazy because, um, you know, when the weight, when, when things started coming out about Wayfair and probably very similar to your dad, we started getting text messages and emails and phone calls like, what's going on? How can this be happening? And I'm like, this does not fit the common tactics, even within child pedophile rings. This, this does not fit. You can't brainwash hundreds, if not thousands of call center reps and third market, third party venues that are using Wayfair as a distribution channel. So you're telling me that thousands of people are in and okay with, there's no way someone would have tipped it. Someone would have not been okay. Someone would have reported it. So that, that already for us right away was like, this does not fit the common tactics of child sex rings in general. And, and those are those are very real and those do happen, but usually on the dark web, like that's why they call it the dark web for a reason. It wouldn't, it's not usually as quite as open. And even there, there are websites. So, I mean, obviously there's going to be a naysayer right now that's like, well, what about Backpage? Well, first of all, um, there are websites that sex is for sale and it's like whack-a-mole. As soon as you shut one down, another one pops back up. And it absolutely is where traffickers can post their victims by the hour. It's also, though, where pro-sex workers can post their services for an hour. And so you don't know if it's an adult pro-sex worker or if it's a trafficker that's trafficking an adult woman, a 19, you know, because you're so smart at 19 because you're an adult. Right. And so it's, it's hard to tell. And, and I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about child pornography, dark web, where you're kidnapping children, like the Madeline McCann situations, possibly. Those are just examples. Like, there are two different types of trafficking. When we talk about 25 different types of trafficking, each type has its own methodology, its own common tactics employed. That's what, that's what um, you know, special agents are for. That's what um, criminal investigators, profiling, like you get to know, those happen for a reason. And sure, things adapt and change. And, and so does the investigators. They adapt and change because they're working cases every single day. And so they're starting to see trends of like, oh, hey, this is changing. And because we work so much with law enforcement, we get to hear some of those as we are doing trainings. And then we'll sit in on the next workshop and we'll hear CIA talk about the newest trends in online recruitment. And so I say all that to say that it didn't fit any of the 25 different types of trafficking, common tactics. We didn't see it fit. And so... I, before I posted anything or even talked about it, I reached out to some of those contacts and I've said, hey, has anyone heard about this? Can you give us any insight? We're getting asked a lot. And everyone directed us to, well, everyone said there's been no substantial evidence that this is true. The person that wrote the article, uh, it started, it originated on a Reddit article, which is an open source website that anybody can write an op-ed piece. You can, I can, they're not, we're not fact-checked. Um, and then from there, it got shared immediately by a pretty large following influencer, lifestyle influencer, and that spread from there. Um, so the Reddit article gets reshared on social media by an influencer, and it was like all goes crazy, goes wild from there. Yeah. And so after talking to lots of different inside 
resources that said it wasn't. They didn't see any substantial evidence. Most people also pointed me to one detective um, out of Texas who actually decided to take kind of the lead on doing their own investigation. And so I brought him on for an interview that comes out on Friday on our Instagram page. And and he shares all about his investigation and how it led to no substantial evidence at all. Um, It does not fit any common forms. They didn't see any, you know, thing. A lot of people, he was saying that a lot of their research actually showed that it ended up leading to algorithms. So uh, lots of different algorithms were used to sell similar things that weren't expensive, but no one seemed to notice that. There was plants that were three bucks. There were pillows for a standard fair market value. Um, So a lot of the same links led to things, but because they weren't expensive, people didn't notice it. And it also was proven that Wayfair algorithms um, rename products based on most common names of people in your county. So it's an algorithm that will actually say like, wherever you live, Micah, whatever the most common names are in your town, Wayfair would rename products just for you because you're in. So algorithms are getting really intense where it's like really targeting. And when there's 800,000 missing children, according to the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children, it's obvious that there's going to be a match. There's 800,000 children using an algorithm for the most common names. You're going to find matches. The other thing I'd love to say about that, um, the missing children, when I've heard people say, well, that's the point, 800,000 missing children just vanished. And you're like, okay, no, they didn't vanish. Uh, We have a case that we just got a phone call on this morning, a a missing, a child reported missing um, here in Oregon where I live, and they're on the National Center of Missing Exploited Children. Well, she she ran away with three traffickers, three older men. The police are following them. It's almost like they're one city ahead. Eventually, they'll probably get her. Um, but she was just reported to be seen like at a, at a Denny's in Lincoln City, Oregon or something. Um, and so they aren't, I think there's this misconception that it's like 800,000 children have vanished and they're living on some sex island with the Epsteins. Yeah. And you're like, eh, I mean, missing children are horrible. Having this girl being with three older men and she's 13 is horribly scary. The police are following them. They're being identified. They know they're in the state of Oregon. They're not with Wayfair on some crazy island. And so I think we just need to be really thoughtful because when when it becomes harmful is if we know that one of those children is in your town, if you live in Lincoln City, Oregon right now, and you don't know, you think that, that she's on some crazy island and has vanished out of thin air, you're not looking today in Target for that girl that might be in your city. You're not walking into Walmart. Sometimes they have those posters of missing children. Oftentimes it will say like custodial interference, right? The, the custodial parent did not bring them back at the scheduled parenting time. Is that scary for a mom to not have her kid brought back after a visit? Absolutely. I've had that happen with my own. It's super scary. But I, she wasn't on a sex island with the presidents, right? I mean, it's just like, sometimes I feel like it goes really far. And what that does is it doesn't teach us to look for people that might be in your very own town that the mom needs to know where they're at. And police are hoping for a tip and, and we're missing the 24 other types of trafficking in your very own community. And then we're looking for the wrong things to protect our own children. We're like so scared they're going to be kidnapped in Ikea. We're not noticing that they're actually talking to some stranger on TikTok and you didn't even know it. And she's sending sexy selfies and you didn't even notice because you're looking at the dude in Ikea. Like it's just, it's creating an environment where we're not going to find missing victims and we're not going to protect our children accurately because we're resharing information 
that the experts are telling you, we've investigated this. It doesn't match. This isn't a common tactic. And I see people that will comment even on my social and will say, well, until an FBI agent speak, says that this wasn't, and I'm like, they have, they have said it. Like, yeah. why? Or some people that are like, well, Rebecca, you were only trafficked by a Romeo trafficker. That doesn't mean you know everything. And I'm like, okay, you really don't know me then because I've worked over 700 victims and I've served over 100,000 agents. Like, I'm not going just based off my own personal story. I'm going based off of all this work we do. The experts are telling you, please stop resharing. But um, it's actually doing more harm than good a lot of the time, right? So we just need like for the average listener that wants to do good and wants to raise awareness and wants to like do their part, we really need to be careful about what we're resharing, what we're quoting, what we're citing. And it's okay to ask someone like, can you cite your source on that stat? I'd like to go read the report myself. Because what I see happen too is people will reshare a statistic and they'll cite their source. But because we're not like reading the context of the report, we're just taking it as truth. So the example that I give often is is the thing like um, on the National Human Trafficking Hotline, they put out a report every year with the most number of calls. And so people will say like, we're number one on the human trafficking report. Oh no, my city's the largest hub for trafficking. And you're like, "Er, calm down. You were the largest city for the most concerned citizens that called the hotline. You could have been the largest city that the national hotline invested posters in. You could, right? Like they could have put a ton of financing into more posters in your airport this year. And now all of a sudden you make the top five list. That doesn't mean you had the most confirmed number of trafficking cases. And so it's like we see the number and someone cites it. And so you just think it's truth and you don't go read the report yourself to go, oh, wait a minute. This is, this is like a tip line. So we got the most tips come in, but not the most confirmed trafficking cases. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally makes sense. So what can we do then to just be proactive with our families, be proactive with, I mean, making a difference in this? I feel like it is so much bigger than everyone ever thought. Um, so what is the best thing that we can do just from a normal person who's not in the industry? I think getting to know the signs, the real signs is really important. And there's a lot of ways out there you can do that. I would say go to trusted websites. We have a red flag brochure that you can download. You can text flags to 33777. We get you the red flag brochures right to your phone. Also go to the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Go to... Um, the department of adult uh, the department of health and human services so a it's like such a long acronym with some of the government agencies but if you go if you type in human trafficking hhs that gives you a lot of really great tips so going to sometimes um just finding out what real reputable sources are because when you looking at websites that are only going to show the sensational red flags yeah. or only going to show you international tactics which you know, knowing what that does. So, you know, like Operation Underground Railroad, they're great. They do great work. They also do most of their work internationally. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the red flags they're going to show are when they're working cases across borders. And I know they're shifting that right now and they're doing a lot of work with task forces. And so I'm, I'm guessing that some of those red flags are going to, are going to adapt in the next few weeks, I would assume. Um, But I think it's just important to keep some of that in mind. Like, oh, are these international red flags or what's happening in my community? Another thing people can do 
is find out who the human trafficking group is in your community. There's almost one in every town. There's a task force in almost every county right now. You, almost every city has a local anti-trafficking organization that's boots on the ground doing the work every single day. And they're going to be able to share with you the types of trafficking that are the most common in your community. So we have all these 25 ways. We know all these red flags. But if I live in rural Oregon, do you know what the most common form of trafficking here is in my tiny small farm town? What? Familial. I believe Moms. Yeah. Moms selling their babies for drugs. That's heartbreaking. What that means is that I have to be more aware of who's going to school with my kid. Who's sitting in the classroom with my child? Who, how can, I, how can I keep an eye out? How can I say, does this person need help? How do we see if child welfare is involved? Um, how do we know that our child welfare agency has received a human trafficking screening training so that I can identify the difference between child abuse and child exploitation? Two very different traumas. Proper diagnosis leads to proper treatment. It's really important that our child welfare offices have the screenings. You could get involved in donating to bring a trafficking training into your community if you feel like you live in an area where they just don't, you don't know if some of those places are even getting screening tools, um, which is something that happened with us. We just didn't have enough cases. We had about seven a year. Um, that's not a ton, but it's still one every other month. But because it's not a ton, departments wouldn't invest training into, um, they wouldn't invest their budget into training of something that felt like a low-level priority. Well, for those seven families, it's not low-level. And how many weren't identified because you didn't have the training? It could have been 20, and we don't know. And, and so those are the types of things. Get to know who's in your community. Find out what trafficking looks like in your town. Volunteer. Volunteer your skill set. Listen to podcasts. Reshare stuff like this. This is how you get the word out. Um, and then get to know the, the red flags as a whole. One of the tools that we also offer on our website, I'm not trying to plug me, please go check out all the groups in your own town. But just so you know the resources that we offer, because this is what we do, um, we have a thing called Find Your Lane. It's how to identify your place in the human trafficking movement. It's a free, fun, interactive quiz. I try to make hard topics palatable, so I tried to make the questions funny. And at the, I mean, as funny as you can with a really serious topic. Um, as soon as you're done taking the quiz, it actually tells you what you, what your personality tests highest in. Are you, do you test high in policy, in demand reduction, in prevention, in awareness, in restoration, in intervention, in international? So we have all these different ways that you can fight trafficking. And just to kind of share briefly, I know we're about out of time, but just to share briefly on that, for example, when we're talking about policy, what a lot of people don't know is you know, laws shape this issue domestically. And so safe harbor law where children can't be arrested for prostitution, there are still 11 states that don't have safe harbor, which means there are 11 states right now in the U.S. that still arrest the children for prostitution. Like, what is she, a 13-year-old criminal mastermind that she can somehow drive her own car and rent her own hotel room? Like, just stop. But yet, that's still law. So if, if policy is something that like really eats at you, you could that could be something you could get in. Hold a candlelight vigil on the courthouse, form a march, um, find out who's lobbying for policy reform in your community and ask them how you can help. So there's all these ways that we can get involved and do something, but it's all of us doing our part. When the big tobacco industry shifted in America because we all started realizing how unhealthy smoking was. It wasn't just because we realized as a culture due to a lot of awareness and a lot of education that can't, that, that tobacco is harmful. Nicotine is harmful. Um, 
It also took lawyers taking the case on pro bono. It took people who worked in the industry to be whistleblowers and it took their families to be to dig in through all these death threats that they used to get. They'd get phone calls and death threats all the time the whistleblowers were. It took all of them. It took all the awareness, all the education, all the people with skill sets. It took survivors coming forward. Look, it, it, took, it took everybody. And so that's what we want to do with sex for sale in our country. It's all of us doing something. And, and that's how you can get involved. Go take the quiz, find out who's in your community and do something. You are the best, Rebecca. Thank you so much, seriously, for all of your knowledge, for all of your, I mean, your heart, your, I know that was, I can't imagine it's easy to talk about this stuff ever, but you are so kind to come on and to share your, just your experience, your story, um, your expertise, um, share with them one more time, the red flags text. What's that number? So you can text flags to three, three, seven, seven, seven. And if you go on our website, rebeccabender.org, you can get the find your lane quiz. It's going to give you the whole hand. You'll see all of the um, nine lanes. You'll see what your highest score is, but you'll get to see all of them. And we even have like a five to 10 minute video um, per lane. So I go on for five minutes on video and I just share with you like everything I know about prevention or everything I know about demand reduction, how you can raise sons in a really hypersexual culture. This isn't just about keeping your daughter safe. This is about keeping our sons safe from becoming buyers and sellers too. Like this is all of us. It's if you have a son or a daughter, this matters. We're, we are raising our kids in a culture that is so sexual like never before. And we have to know how to do that well. And so we give you just five minute videos on every single lane. I'm so excited to dig in. Remember, go get her book in pursuit of love. And if you go to her website, it's there too. And is it, is it linked on your Instagram as well? I think so. It's in the link tree. I'm sure. Yeah. Instagram is at I, is it I am just, I'm Rebecca Bender. I'm no A. I'm (laughs) Rebecca Bender. Yeah. A was one too many characters apparently. So (laughs) I'm, I'm I'm Rebecca Bender. Perfect. Go find her, follow along. Um, I think the most important thing that we do in all of this, I know how hard it is to see all this stuff and to know what to believe and who to trust and find credible resources. Rebecca's one operation underground railroad is one there's, there's, solid, solid sources that we can trust. Start yeah. there, start there. And yeah. then you can branch out and do your own research and all that stuff. Yeah. And the national human trafficking hotline has all the data of all the calls that are coming in, in your state, in your community, yeah. um, sharedhope.org, shared hope international. They put out a report card on your state. So if you guys are interested, I mean, every people listening in come from all over. So if you want to know what your state is scoring, what your laws are, um, shared hope puts out a report card every year to let each state know where they stand. It's kind of like the office, the OTIP report, but it's per state for the U.S. So there's, there's a lot of resources out there. We just have to know, like you said, where to look. The way that I finally got out was because someone saw, saw something and said something. And I know it feels like these counterintuitive, counterintuitive messages to be like, but what if I get it wrong? Am I sensationalizing? Like, no, we always want you to say something, see something. But if people are telling you don't reshare, just don't, you know, like know that, oh, that one wasn't right. That's fine. We just move on. Doesn't, there's no shame. We just move on. But we had a neighbor that saw something suspicious and she told a friend of hers who happened to be a sheriff. She said, something's wrong with my neighbors. It's a whole bunch of young girls and a guy. I think they're drug dealers. That's what she said. And that's what began this investigation that eventually led 
to my trafficker being arrested and, and victims being able to eventually escape. It was a much longer process that I talk about in the book. But what is important, I think, is like when we ran, the feds, we thought the feds were coming to my house next. My trafficker had me take the kids and he told me to hop the fence. And I can remember jumping this giant fence in Las Vegas. I mean, Vegas fences, if anyone's seen them, they're like six foot brick, kind of that concrete brick yeah. walls. And I can remember like scaling it and throwing my daughter over and hunkering down in the neighbor's grass and holding her under my arm and looking in the neighbor's sliding glass window, like, are they awake? Are they going to see us? And now today to have my little seven-year-old is now 20. She's thriving at college. She's a division one athlete. She's the second fastest female in Oregon's history. And to think like her future is so different because that neighbor saw something and said something <laughs> that it broke generations of potential exploitation were severed because the neighbor saw something. And so it matters. It matters not just to the victim, it matters to her kids, matters to her grandchildren. Like this is generations that you get to change when you learn the signs and you speak. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Up. I love it. And that's the best thing that we can do is watch and be ready to share. And even if it's wrong, be proactive about it because better. Be yeah, it's okay. Sorry. Yeah. And we're not telling people don't share, don't say anything. Yeah. But if you hear it's wrong, don't like try not to, yeah, like try not to like be like, well, I don't know. I need to hear it from four experts. And then right. four experts are like, we're telling you. And they're like, I need it from seven. You're like, okay, when does it st like, and then people would say, well, you know, some of the experts made mistakes in the Epstein case, so now we don't trust anyone. I'm like, I, I mean, I get that. It's, it's hard, but, you know, that's a very unique situation when a bajillionaire has contacts and can, like, yeah. grease palms. That's very different than, like, your local task forces are doing really good work, and, and they know what to look for, and they, they know places you can plug in. So, um, you know, you've got some great people in your communities that are, that are dedicating their lives to fight this issue. You can, you can most of the time, trust them. <laughs> There's always an exception to every rule, right? I, I, as soon as I say something, I can hear the naysayers like, well, remember that one time in Camden, New Jersey? <laughs> Wrapping up another episode. And I just want to thank you for sticking around. Before you head out, I would love to hear from you. It would mean the world to me if you left this podcast a quick review wherever you're listening from. And if you got some nuggets from the message today, don't forget to share it with your friends, your team, and your Instagram story so that anyone else who needs it can find it too. And be sure to tag me 
at Micah Folsom Fit so that I can shout you out and share your page with my friends. Thanks for hanging. Now let's go take action on those goals and dreams because if you can feel it in your heart and see it in your head, then you can hold it in your hand. So until next time, go do your craft.